The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in 5, 4, 3. The music in Home Alone strikes a careful balance between original film score and song score. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and in this episode, we are still home alone, listening to the music from this holiday comedy classic by John Williams. In our last episode, we talked about some of the history behind this movie and took an in-depth look at some of the film's main themes, covering three leitmotifs. The themes turn songs called Somewhere in My Memory... And Star of Bethlehem. As well as that classic musical word for doom and gloom, the four-note phrase traditionally known as Dies Irae, which is Latin for Day of Wrath, Judgment Day. We even saw how it transformed into Carol of the Bells, which features the Dies Irae as its main repeating melody. But my friends, that's just the beginning. We're going to discuss more themes and actually listen to musical highlights from the film. We'll even take a listen to music that was replaced or omitted altogether and talk about the important role that music plays in making Home Alone a holiday classic. Let's take it from the top. We mentioned that the movie opens with just a fragment of Somewhere in My Memory, right after we hear the condensed 20th Century Fox fanfare. Well, right after Somewhere in My Memory is heard, we are introduced to a theme that author and soundtrack producer Mike Mattesino calls the house motif. That's right, a theme for the McAllister house itself. And it's a mischievous and almost magical melody. Now, before I play it, I want to emphasize that last point. There is a supernatural implication that the movie plays with, but never states explicitly. As if there's a kind of magic afoot that leads to Kevin being left home alone. You know, oftentimes when there is a magical plot in a comedy, like, say, the Zoltar machine in Big, or any movie where clearly something supernatural happens that creates situational comedy... We're always let in on it as the audience. But if you remember Home Alone, the music, and I would argue the filmmakers, flirt with this magic idea but never admit it's real. 
almost as if it's just in a child's imagination. More on this later. Let's take a listen. There's the beginning of Somewhere in My Memory. Now, here's the house theme as we see an almost Halloween-inspired image of a full moon surrounded by ominous clouds. A dark blue nighttime graphic of an old-fashioned house rolls up into frame. As it does, we hear the melody dance about lightly, finally landing on a beat. And now here's the establishment of the B melody of the house theme, which will be used quite a bit in the film. A little slower in rhythm, but also in a mischievous minor key. Then we hear the main A melody again, this time with eerie string harmonics. Until finally, we fade into actual photography of the real McAllister house. As we do, we hear two things. The return of Somewhere in My Memory, that motif, along with the sound of people, most likely a family, as the visual implies, and particularly children. As we enter the chaos of the house, the music fades. Okay, so what did we just hear? What kind of feelings did it evoke when you listened to it? Did it make you grin? Did it make you curious? Did it remind you of the holiday season? Of magic? Of mischief? It hits me in all of those ways. Why? Well, Let's start with some of the obvious ways. I hear a light, bouncy rhythm accented with, you guessed it, jingle bells. A dead giveaway for a holiday arrangement. I have a true story about writing music. Quick sidebar here. I once composed a piece of music for a snowy, icy world for a video game meant for 8 to 12-year-olds. And I got a piece of feedback from the development team that said they felt it leaned too far towards Christmas or holiday music. To meet this feedback, I literally just removed the track that contained the Jingle Bell accents. It was a racing game. And when I did that, that feedback was considered to be resolved. That's when I learned that the association with Christmas is so strong that Jingle Bells will turn any musical arrangement into a full-blown sleigh ride. And as tempted as I am to cut right now into a montage of pop songs with Jingle Bells dubbed in to illustrate this point... I'll leave that experiment up to you, dear listeners, and we'll continue on with Home Alone. Besides jingle bells and strings and woodwinds, certainly, we need to talk about the main instrument featured here in this opening house melody. A celeste, or a celeste, which means celestial, heavenly. It's a bell-like keyboard instrument that we've talked about in the past, particularly in our episodes about John Williams' score for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Almost 11 years before Williams' main theme for those movies appeared as Hedwig's theme in a teaser trailer, Williams used the Celeste to great effect here in Home Alone. Again, I ask, why? How does the Celeste make us feel? You know, so much of film scoring is about our cultural associations with our own past. Music is often a shorthand for something familiar in our conscious and or subconscious minds. Sometimes just by referencing familiar textures, melodies, or tonality that 
creates association with feelings of longing, mystery, joy, what have you. What am I getting at? Well, remember when I mentioned the Russian composers in the previous episode? How many times during the holiday season do we hear this piece of music? That, my friends, is one of the most famous pieces of orchestral repertoire to feature the Celeste. It's called The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies from a ballet, as well as a famous orchestral concert suite, called The Nutcracker, written in 1892 by Russian composer Peter Tchaikovsky. This ballet, based on E.T.A. Hoffman's The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, is performed in countless ballet halls and orchestral halls throughout North America, particularly around the holidays. It has been since the 60s. In many ways, this piece of music is a perfect template for Home Alone. It's childlike, with the Celeste almost reminding us of a child's music box. It's dreamy or sleepy. It's somewhat surreal, and it has a sense of mystery. Not to mention that wintry, icy appeal that I mentioned in the previous episode regarding Carol of the Bells. The Celeste kind of reminds us of winter. And while the filmmakers, if we recall, instructed John Williams to write a Prokofiev-like score, meaning in the style of Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev, this is at least one of two obvious influences that The Nutcracker in particular by Tchaikovsky had on the score to Home Alone. More on the second Tchaikovsky influence a little bit later. Well, what about Prokofiev, you might be asking? Ah, he too loved the Celeste, using it in his suite for Lieutenant Kijay, which we talked about in the last episode. The romance movement of Lieutenant Kijay contains a section where the Celeste takes the main melody, just as Tchaikovsky's Sugar Plum Fairies does in The Nutcracker. It's yet another reason why I think Lieutenant Kijay was at least one source of inspiration for the filmmakers, and perhaps for Williams himself. Here's the romance movement from Lieutenant Kijay. By the way, that melody might be familiar to some of you who are into pop music, particularly from Sting's 1985 record, Dream of Blue Turtles. He used it as the music break in his song, Russians. Russians love their children but I digress. I want to say one more thing about the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies piece. That piece seems to play with these sort of soft cadences, almost like it's avoiding a solid landing on the tonal center until it's hit about four phrases and it lands with a solid thump on the one chord. Check it out. Here's Sugar Plum Fairies. Some nice chromaticism here, almost like a film score, landing on a soft cadence. Then there's this little kind of woodwind fall, followed by Celeste, setting up what we call a half cadence here another little woodwind fall down a scale. And now the third phrase is similar to the first. 
and now a series of woodwind falls. Here met with Celeste, here again, then again, until it lands on the one chord, solidly ending the phrase. Okay, well now let's listen to the house theme. While it's at a much faster tempo, the form is very similar. Notice that the first phrase avoids any perfect intervals here. You know, it doesn't go... It doesn't do that. Here's a soft little half cadence. Now the second phrase, slight melodic change. Soft half cadence. Third phrase does the same. Now listen to the end. Series of woodwind falls. Then a solid hard cadence landing firmly on the one. Well... One could definitely argue that the Nutcracker was used as either temp music for Home Alone or was, in the very least, mentioned to Williams as a point of reference in a spotting session. I would be shocked to learn otherwise. From this point, once we've entered the house, there's very little to no music in the film for quite some time. We leave the whimsy of the opening music and titles behind, and we're thrust into the chaos of a house filled with relatives kids of all ages, and adults trying to manage it. In fact, we don't hear any music until Kevin, our main character, is instructed to go pack his suitcase himself, something that, as an eight-year-old, he doesn't know how to do by himself. Here, the movie suddenly changes, the camera changes, the fourth wall is broken, and Kevin actually looks at the camera and speaks to us, the audience, directly. Williams adds to this break of the movie's own reality by scoring this moment, helping smooth us into the realization that this movie is from Kevin's point of view, and he can actually talk to us if he chooses to at any time. And the music disappears as quickly as it came on. From here, we don't get any real music until the scene where Kevin's older brother Buzz points out Old Man Marley, the South Bend shovel slayer who lives next door which we discussed at length in our previous episode. Star of Bethlehem is heard in its minor mode glory, and that's introduced as a new theme, and the DSRA is set up as a running plot point. But afterwards, again, we return to no music. Music is actually replaced here by a screeching car as a poor pizza delivery kid races through an icy neighborhood to try and get his delivery out before the pizza becomes free of charge. We see a sign on top of his car saying, Little Nero delivers in 20 minutes or you don't pay. (laughs) That's not a good idea. He's destroying the neighborhood. It's a nice gag. Very John Hughes. Anyway, eventually Kevin gets in a fight with his older brother over the pizza that gets delivered, and he makes a huge mess in the kitchen. And even when confronted with it by the entire family, with the shot of the whole cast looking at Kevin, they do so in complete silence. Look what you did, you little jerk! We get no music here. We're just planted into Kevin's reality. This family is making him very uncomfortable and very upset. Kevin, get upstairs right now. Why? Kevin, you're such a disease. Shut up. Kevin, upstairs. Say goodnight, Kevin. Goodnight, Kevin. 
As Kevin is escorted away from the family by his mother, he runs into the policeman at the door, who's really a burglar in disguise, casing the house, and that policeman has been trying to find out if the family is leaving for the holidays. Once he gets his answer, we hear another very short cue from Williams, where he establishes, via the low woodwinds, a motif for the burglars. Just a piece of it. Now we, just like Kevin, are suspicious. The music fades away again, and at this point we land on the scene that sets up the movie's premise. Kevin is sick of his family, and his mother dares him to ask Santa for a new one. He then adamantly wishes for his family to completely disappear when he says, I hope I never see any jerks again. And now we come to a cue that pays off on our supernatural setup in the opening credits. Whether real or imagined, the return of the B melody of the house theme gives us a sense that there's some Christmas magic in the air. I wish they would all just disappear. The A melody of the house theme makes a bouncy return. And here, director Chris Columbus, director of photography Julio Macat, and editor Raja Gosnell have some real fun putting together a magical montage as the camera moves outside. First, we see that full moon again. Oh, here we go. Clouds are moving away quickly. It's a windy night. We see an establishing shot of the house through tree branches swaying roughly in the wind as a plastic Santa gets blown down the street. And we get a nice Mickey Mousing sync point with the musical score on a close-up of a lamppost adorned with a red bow and ribbon here as it rips off and flies away off screen with the wind. The strings start going crazy as the wind rocks the house. The camera angles start going wild too. There are close-ups on the front door of the house and a wreath hanging from it that features a Santa head in the middle. We cut to it again and the camera rushes toward that Santa head, which almost seems to look directly at the camera, further suspending the question of magic versus an explainable winter storm. Is Santa granting Kevin's wish? If so, how? Well, that question is answered when a tree branch snaps and breaks a power line, and we see the lights on the house go out. Before the age of cell phones, the only thing being relied upon to wake up the McAllisters in time to catch their flight is the electric alarm clock by the McAllisters' bed. With the power cut, that clock has gone dead. And now the real plot of Home Alone is about to begin. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. This next section of the movie sees the plot progress at a breakneck pace as we start with a mad panic by the parents. The power went out. The alarm didn't go off. The McAllisters are going to miss their flight to Paris. Peter! We slept in! Remember the Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky? I did mention that it would come up again, and my friends, this piece, to me, is the smoking gun, the almost irrefutable proof that the Nutcracker Suite is a direct influence, and most likely even a temp score, for Home Alone. This piece, written by Williams, is very much in the spirit 
of the Russian dance from the Nutcracker Ballet. And here's William's piece again. Between this and the house theme, with its similarities to the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, I think there's enough evidence to safely say that the Nutcracker and Tchaikovsky are just as big of an influence on Home Alone's musical score as Prokofiev is, if not more so. Just like the Nutcracker, we are treated to what feel like a few musical movements, and at this point in our story, we've arrived at a high-energy, fast-tempoed dance. But movies are a balancing act of tone, pacing, storytelling. We have up moments, and we have down moments. This following part of the movie is an interesting study because it features film scores, we've just heard, but it also features a popular Christmas hit and even some very important silence. While the back half of the movie gets a little more straightforward with the score taking more and more prominence, there's still a delicate balance being struck here at the top of the movie. Let's keep listening, and I'll explain. As we cut away from the frenetic pace of the family trying to get ready and make it out the door, we see some neighborhood kid asking the airport van drivers who are impatiently waiting for their late family pickup outside about a million nonsense questions. The score goes between two dynamic extremes here, because we go from that... Do you know the McAllisters are going to France? Do you know if it's cold there? Do these vans get good gas mileage? Gee, kid, I don't know. Hit the road. And then we cut back to the family, and we get this. Heather, do a head count. Make sure everyone's in the vans. Where are the passports and tickets? Uh, put them in the microwave and dry them off. How fast does this thing go? Does it have automatic transmission? Does it have four-wheel drive? Look, I told you before, kid, don't bother me. Now beat it. Now, after the chaos, as the kids are all lined up outside to get into two airport shuttles, one of the older cousins does a head count. Line up in front of the van. Roger, take my batteries. Come on, you guys. Line up and shut up. Shut up. Unfortunately, when counting the kids, she counts the back of the neighbor kid's head who happens to be donning a winter beanie, thinking that it's Kevin. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay. But it's not. It's just some nosy neighbor kid going through all the bags inside the van. And this causes a miscount on the rush out the door. Interesting to note, Williams actually scored this scene very lightly, but it was omitted in the final mix. I've gone ahead and restored the cue as it was released on the La La Land Records 25th anniversary soundtrack, which also gave a helpful note about a sync point to help me line it up. Here is what Williams wrote for this little sequence that wasn't ultimately used. I got to take a head count. One, two, eleven, ninety-two, twelve. Buzz, don't be a moron. Six, seven, 
eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, half in this van, half in this van. Let's go. Have a good trip. Bring me back some French. Perhaps the filmmakers felt that, in the grand scheme of things and pacing of this sequence, it was too heavy-handed in pointing out the miscount. Eight, nine, ten. And the sequence played better with a little bit of reality mixed into the magic. Williams wrote another cue that was unused in the final film. As the McAllister family in the shuttle vans drive off, and then we immediately cut to them running through the airport in order to make their plane. The cue that wasn't used should sound familiar. Yes, it was another statement of the holiday flight motif, as Mike Mattesino calls it. Instead, Chris Columbus decided to use a song score for this moment, our first in the movie so far. The track he chose? Chuck Berry's 1958 holiday hit, Run Rudolph Run. the change? We can only speculate, but this feels more like pure John Hughes to me. The lyrical content fits beautifully, and it also adds that oh-so-common holiday hustle and bustle that we're all familiar with and can relate to. We see our McAllister family in a very public place, in a very common scenario, running to catch a plane during the holidays. It feels a bit more grounded, perhaps, than the holiday flight motif inspired by the Nutcracker's Russian dance. Once the family is seated on the plane, we enter a period without music that I think is really, really effective. Using sound and hard cuts, Columbus and editor Raja Gosnell juxtapose the frenzy that the family is going through with the eerie quiet that Kevin experiences when he wakes up. Fasten your seatbelts, please. Champagne, please. It's free, isn't it? First, we're on the plane. We made it. Can you believe it? I hope we didn't forget anything. Then we cut to Kevin waking up. He opens the door. Very little sound here. We're really placed in Kevin's point of view. When we cut back to the plane, it's a hard cut right in the middle of a loud plane takeoff. And then eventually we go back to Kevin. We go back to the quiet house right here. A toilet flushes. He walks down the stairs into the kitchen and we hear nothing but very subtle footfalls. He turns on the TV, and it's the 20th Century Fox holiday movie Miracle on 34th Street from 1947 with Maureen O'Hara, a movie which Hughes would eventually remake, by the way. What are you doing out of costume? Now get back and get ready. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I thought you were our Santa Claus. Your Santa Claus is intoxicated. Oh, no! Yes, it's disgraceful. Kevin starts to realize that it's too quiet in the house. He gets up, looks around, turns off the TV, and calls for mom. And right after he does, we abruptly cut back to the loud, loud plane as it's in mid-flight. Mom? 
The effect here is, in my opinion, wonderful. It's a great example of musical restraint. It makes the moments more relatable when watching, more real. I see my own son when I see Kevin with his hair sticking up, not quite awake, walking through the house in the quiet morning. Perhaps that's what director Chris Columbus wanted to evoke, a familiar feeling. Or maybe, maybe the filmmakers just wanted to leave silence for the audience in the movie theater to hear itself giggle nervously as the movie's main scenario unfolds. The sequence does eventually end with music, as Kevin really starts to realize that he's home alone. As Kevin searches the house, the B melody of the house theme is heard. As he heads downstairs into the basement, the strings tremolo in a descending line, and the house theme takes on a haunted house's tone. Suddenly, all attention turns to the furnace, which seems to be alive, even vocalizing in Kevin's scared imagination. runs away and outside the house. As he does, listen to these stabbing, almost Bernard Herrmann-esque psycho strings. Only the jingle bells tell us that this is still a Christmas movie. As Kevin approaches the garage doors, which are open, still containing two cars, we hear the Star of Bethlehem theme again. Kevin returns to the kitchen as the B melody of the house theme plays again. As he sits there, he comes to the conclusion that I made my family disappear. Then he starts to remember all of the unpleasant moments from the night before, and we hear a modified version of Somewhere in My Memory. Just to shorten that, I'm going to start referring to Somewhere in My Memory as the family theme. As Kevin realizes that his previous night's wish has come true, he says it again. I made my family disappear. And then celebrates with a rock and blues riff recorded specifically for the film by Southside Johnny Lyon and the Asbury Dukes. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Kevin is now home alone. And like a typical eight-year-old, starts doing things that he normally wouldn't be allowed to do. First up, hmm, I think I'll leave the front door wide open, grab my snow sled, and try and sled down the main staircase and straight out the front door into the snow. Cool, cool. As he begins this attempt... A new leitmotif or theme emerges. This one is for Kevin. It's Kevin's theme. And the first time we hear it is via the lowest of low-pitched brass instruments, playing in a higher register, as Williams is fond of doing for comedic effect, the tuba. 
The melody, with its opening fifths, descending eighth notes, and a leap up to the octave, is comically reminiscent of the hero's main theme from Star Wars. John Williams, as we've discussed in our episodes on both Superman and Return of the Jedi, has a long history of using the tuba for comedic effect. His history of scoring comedies in the 1960s comes immediately to mind, with music from films such as Fitz Willie, starring Dick Van Dyke from 1967. Here, once Kevin preps for launch, the tuba and strings give way to a full Prokofiev-like brassy trumpet fanfare. Assuring us that this little adventure is in good fun. Later, that very night, two burglars are casing the neighborhood watching the timed lights switch on inside all of the empty houses. As they start talking about the McAllister's house, let's face it, it's a massive, expensive-looking place, they describe it as their silver tuna, the big score. As they do, Williams gives us the first full statement of the burglar's theme via woodwinds, playing multiple octaves apart. That's great. It's almost like a pair. One woodwind is the brains, and one is not so much the brains. Great comedic instincts and orchestration here. Not only does the mustache-twirling melody of the bad guys keep the danger light, after all, a kid home alone with criminals looking to enter the house isn't exactly funny as a concept, but the instrument choices, or orchestration here, does the same. We know that these two are not exactly world-class burglars. They're a few cans short of a six-pack, if you know what I mean. Back to the McAllister family, they finally land in Paris, and we are treated to what would have been the third scene, but in the final film is only the second scene that contains the family flight motif, as they disembark and go rushing towards the payphones. Back in Chicago, Kevin, who has scared away the burglars by cleverly turning more lights on, is hiding in his bed. While doing so, he misses a police officer knocking on the door, who has been sent to the house by Kevin's own family. Since Kevin is too scared to answer, we hear the family motif, but one that harmonically reflects the uncertainty that Kevin feels. Is that knock on the door just the burglars again?
eventually he decides that he needs to go outside and declare that he is not afraid anymore. He's the man of the house, he says. This leads us into another run-in with Old Man Marley, which we covered on the last show. Star of Bethlehem and Diazire are both heard again. Kevin goes screaming back into the house. The next morning, Kevin is looking for money to buy himself a new toothbrush. Where does he look? In his older brother Buzz's room. As he climbs Buzz's bookshelf, we hear that tuba again, this time playing the family theme as he's wreaking havoc in a room that is normally forbidden for him to enter. Kevin finally makes it to the store with the money to buy a new toothbrush, and he's so spooked by yet another appearance of Old Man Marley that he runs out of the door without remembering to pay for the toothbrush. A police chase on an outdoor skating rink takes place, all set to a very full and rhythmic version of Star of Bethlehem. It ends with Kevin escaping and running back home. As he's running, we hear a rhythmic, synthy statement of the family theme. Meanwhile, the burglars, aka the wet bandits, are finishing up a complete ransacking of the house across the street while Kevin is walking home with his toothbrush. As the burglars get in their van to leave, Kevin is almost to the front of the house that they're at, the one they're robbing, and he is almost run over by the burglars leaving out of the driveway. A big chase sequence set to music is about to begin. But before it starts, I want to point out the tiniest detail in the sound effects editing. Listen for church bells. We don't need that kind Don't tell me what to do, okay? I can do it if I want to. Hey, not sick. sick. Hey, watch out! Like I said, it's a little background detail, but this is a thoughtful sound effects edit because it adds to our spatial perceptive function of that neighborhood because we're about to see a church for the first time. The church used in the movie was, of course, shot in a completely different neighborhood in real life. But a sound effects edit like this helps us, even on a subconscious level, very quickly without even thinking about it, accept the fact that there is a church right up the street when Kevin eventually hides in it. He can get there on foot. This will come up again later when he runs home on Christmas Eve. All of the geography in this movie needs to be in believable walking distance for a kid. Anyway... As Kevin recognizes Joe Pesci's character as being the same man that posed as a police officer in his house the other night, he is overcome by fear. He slowly starts walking away, and the music kicks in as the van creeps behind him, following him, 
It starts with a chime synced right to the sparkle of Joe Pesci's gold crown when he smiles at Kevin. As the van inches behind him down the street, there's almost a Jaws reference happening here in the strings. As Kevin goes faster and heads towards the church, and we see the front of the Gothic church for the first time, we get a huge, grandiose statement of Star of Bethlehem. musical setup that will pay off later in the movie. As we can hear, the meaning behind Star of Bethlehem is kind of starting to change. Kevin, realizing that he has to defend his home from burglars a second night in a row, devises a plan. Using mannequins found in the basement, I have no idea why they're there, but hey. Along with Buzz's life-size cutout of basketball hero Michael Jordan, and a train set, and a record player, Kevin creates the silhouettes of multiple adults having what looks like a holiday party from the street. This is all set to song score via the smash holiday pop hit from 1958, Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Rockin' around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. The wet bandits, foiled once again, drive away. Kevin is safe, home alone, for another night. Our next episode will conclude our three-part look at William's fantastic holiday score. We'll also discuss more song score and more comedic Christmas action as our story comes to its slapstick conclusion. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.